So this morning, we're in a message. This won't even be a series. This is a one-timer. It is a message that has been a part of my life for about seven or eight years now. It's a message called Decisions, Decisions. Decisions have been a part of my life for a lot longer than seven or eight years, right? Anybody else out there make a decision every day? Some of y'all made a decision this morning to be here. Some others made a decision not to be here. We'll catch up with them later, right? But every day is just chock full of decisions, isn't it? We have to make all kinds of decisions. We make them every single day. We make them from the moment that we get up pretty much to the moment that we go to sleep, right? I mean, the last thing that I do every night before I go to sleep is make sure that my alarm is set for the next morning. And I have to make a decision about how much sleep am I going to get tonight. Right? Some of y'all made that decision last night. We've got to make decisions constantly, all the time. And if any of you are like me, you have not always made the best decisions. You've not always made the right decision. Some of you have learned that it is very beneficial to make the right decision as often as possible. And we learn this because we have made the wrong decision way too often, right? Wrong decisions. We get, we get freaked out about decision-making sometimes because we've all made bad decisions. We've all made wrong decisions. And we have learned that with these bad or wrong decisions, there is fallout. There is repercussion. There is consequence. My children's worst friend. <laughs> there are consequences for our actions. There are consequences for our decisions. There are consequences for our indecision or inability to make a decision and I think that many of us are stuck in indecision mode we're stuck in paralysis of analysis because we have learned about these negative repercussions of wrong decisions so we're afraid to make decisions we're afraid especially to make the big decisions like the everyday decisions, we probably don't get too afraid of those, like what to wear today. Now, that might have been a long decision process for some of you, but it probably wasn't because you were afraid of the repercussions. You just, you know, you got some style sense, some style consciousness about you. There are other decisions, though, that are bigger decisions that we can get really bogged down and stuck and afraid to make that decision because we're afraid of the repercussions if we make the wrong decision. The other thing we've learned is that it is possible to make the right decision at the wrong time and still run into some of those consequences. If you make the, the right decision at the wrong time, that still has kind of a wrong effect, doesn't it? If you make the, the right decision at the right time, the consequences of that, the fallout from that is good fallout. That's good stuff. But if you make the right decision at the wrong time, or the wrong decision at the right time, or God help us all, the wrong decision at the wrong time, right? All of those things, except for the right decision at the right time, get us those negative fallout, negative repercussions, negative consequences, and we get stuck in paralysis. We get stuck in indecision. We're afraid to make the big decisions. What if there was a way, what if there was a way to help you make good 
God-led, solid decisions? What if there was a way to help ensure that you would make the right decision at the right time more often than not? Would you be interested? There's two hands going up. The rest of you don't care. Amen. Okay, hands going up all over the room. Yes, now everybody's interested. That's what we call a buying signal when I was in sales, right? That's a buying signal. That means you're interested in what I got, all right? So I won't have to, I won't, I won't spend any more time trying to sell you on the idea. Let's just get into the features and the benefits of what I'm selling today. Here's the deal. I was in a decision-making process. A very difficult decision lay before me seven years ago, 2007. I made the critical error, everybody take note, of going into work on my day off. Bad idea. Don't ever do that. So I go into work on my day off. I'm working at a big church uh, in Grapevine. I was working at Fellowship Church. And I don't think that's any secret that I was there. I was at Fellowship Church on staff there for several years. I was on staff there for six years doing our married small groups ministry. And I loved what I did. I worked with some great people. Uh, we had a huge small groups ministry. I was friends with all of these these thousands, literally, of people that were in that ministry. I knew most of them, uh, some of them very, very well, some of our best friends. I worked with two of my best friends. Awesome time. I loved what I did. Going to work on my day off one day, and my boss calls me in and says, hey, have you ever thought about going into student ministry? Translation, would you be interested in taking a backwards career step? Because in church world, you start in, in student ministry or children's ministry, and then you graduate into adult ministry. I got to start in adult ministry, and I had a pride thing about that, right? I didn't have to do my time with sixth graders and, and 12th graders and all of that. So she said, would you like to go into student ministry? No. Mm -mm. Have you ever thought about student? No. Nope. Mm -mm. Nope. Haven't thought about that. And I think I'm going to leave now. <laughs> She said, well, go home and think about it. Go home and pray about it. Talk to Trina. No, you didn't hear me the first time? Said, is it even an option? And she said, yes, 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 it's an option. We're not forcing. I said, okay, all right. So I went home. I told Trina, like in passing, right, because I didn't really want her to get excited about it. I didn't think she would, but I wasn't willing to risk it, right? And she and I agreed, no. So we, I went back to my boss, no. She said, well, keep praying about it. Like, seriously, are you sure y'all aren't just going to put me there no matter what? She goes, no, 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 it's your option. I think I said no two or three times in about a, a four-week period. I even went to lunch with, the, with the, the pastor that was over that part of our uh, ministry at that time. I had lunch with him. I went and checked out our student ministry service. It was awesome. Six, seven hundred uh, high school students in, in a room worshiping, full student band. It was, it was pretty impressive. Uh, no. <laughs> no. And some more no. And she kept telling me, just keep praying about it. I was like, seriously? So I have this big decision. I feel like I'm being nudged towards, but Trina and I are like, no, and we had all of our criteria and reasons for why we didn't want to do it. We had two young kids. We knew that was a lot of, you know, being at high school football games and late nights and this, that, and the other, and it's, it's just a lot of busy, 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 and so that was our criteria for no. Well, about a month more passes, 
and we had this church conference that we hosted, and I'm at this church conference, and one of the keynote speakers is our senior pastor's father, and he comes in and starts preaching to preachers about the next generation and about how we need to be investing in our high school students, and that is the future of the church, and that is the future of Christianity, and that should be the main focus. And I'm like, really? And so I was talking to a couple of my friends who were also pastors in the church about this decision-making process that I was in. And one of my pastor friends, a guy named Josh, said, hey, I've seen you anguishing over this for weeks, and I should have told you this sooner, but I remember a time when I was wrestling with leaving a church that I was on staff, and one of my mentors, one of the elders at that church, pulled out a passage of Scripture and said, hey, this is a great pattern for making God-led decisions. Let me show you this. And Josh opens up his Bible to Psalm chapter 37. If you would join me in your Bibles in Psalm chapter 37. While you're turning there, let me go ahead and preface that Psalm 37 is not a psalm about decision-making. Okay? Just get that out right away. It's not a psalm. It's not a psalm about decision-making. It is actually, it, it, it really is a sermon about how righteous people or, or believers should deal with unrighteous people who are prospering when the righteous are suffering. And it's a fantastic as you would imagine since it's in the Bible. It's a fantastic sermon on that. But tucked within a couple of verses is this decision-making process. Psalm 37, verses 3 through 7. Let's read it. Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and enjoy safe pasture. Take delight in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord, trust in him, and he will do this. He will make your righteous reward shine like the dawn, your vindication like the noonday sun. Verse 7, be still before the Lord and wait patiently for him. Tucked right in there, in those few verses, is a pattern for decision-making that is awesome, that has helped me in the last seven years make some very good God-led decisions. Do you guys see the pattern? Let's go, let's go back through those verses real quick and let me, let me see if we can kind of pluck out of this passage what this pattern is. Starting in verse 3, trust, trust in the Lord, trust in the Lord. That's, for, that's the first step in the pattern. Trust in the Lord. In verse 4, take delight in the Lord. Delight in the Lord. That's, that's the second part of this decision-making pattern. Delight in the Lord. Trust in the Lord and then delight in the Lord. And then in verse 5, can y'all say it because you're, you're picking up on this. What is it? It's commit. Commit. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust, delight, commit, and then in verse 7, be still. Be still. Wait. 
trust, delight, commit, wait. That's the hardest one. Just I mean, that's a sneak preview for later, but that's wait. Whew. Trust, delight, commit, wait. Let's talk about how we actually do these things. What do these things mean and how do we do them? Let's start off with trust. Trusting in who? In the Lord. It's trust in the Lord. Have faith. This is what we talked about for the last four weeks, by the way. It's having faith. It's trusting that Jesus is who he says he is and that he does what he says he will do. Some of y'all are tired of hearing me say that, right? But you know why I keep saying it? Because it's that important. Because it's that important, you can't hear it too much. Trust that God is who he says, that he does what he says he will do. Trust that he is in control, that he is sovereign and almighty, that he is all-knowing, omniscient. He knows everything. He knows everything that has ever happened. He knows everything that is happening right now and everything that will ever happen in the future. I would have liked to have had that as a part of my decision-making process about 20 years ago. Anybody else? Right? Trust in the Lord. Trust that He is who He says He is, that He does what He says He will do. Trust that His plan for you, His creation, is better than your plan for yourself. Since He kind of thought you up, and kind of put you together, and kind of spun you out into this life, since he actually, the Bible says, breathed life into you, I think he gets a bit of, of my trust just on that, right? I mean, shouldn't we just trust him just a little bit since he's the one who made us, since he's the one who created us with a purpose, since he put you here in this time, at this place, with these people, with specific intent, and his way is perfect? See, we trust God because God is the only one who is trustworthy. He's the only one who is worthy of your trust. Now, you know people that you think are trustworthy. I was a Boy Scout. I'm an Eagle Scout. I'm bragging now. I'm an Eagle Scout, right? And and the Scout law includes, a Scout is Trustworthy, loyal, faithful, friendly, kind, obedient, cheerful, thrifty, brave, clean, and reverent, right? First one is trustworthy. A scout is trustworthy. You know what? I'm not trustworthy. It's out there. There you go. I'm not trustworthy. How do I know? (laughs) Because I have violated people's trust. I have violated my own trust. I've done things I wished I wouldn't have done. I've failed. I've been morally wrong before. I am not always trustworthy. I would like for all of you to trust me. But as you trust me, understand something. Eventually, I will do something stupid and violate that trust. I'm a sinner. Saved by grace. Right? Trustworthy. Who else might be trustworthy? Now that you know your pastor isn't, that really messes things up, doesn't it? Who else is trustworthy? Parents. Most of you in the room are parents. Are parents trustworthy? All right, mom and dad, let's be real. How many times have you screwed up with your kids? Never, none of you. As a kid, I remember getting spankings for things I didn't do. Not that I didn't deserve them for something else I didn't get caught at, 
right? But that's another story for another day, right? But mom and dad make mistakes, don't they? When Lauren, our oldest, was an infant, I took her with me to work. We had a little daycare you know, facility there at the church where I worked. And Bass Pro Shops is across the street from Fellowship Church, just saying. And if you've been around here very long, you know I fish a little, a lot. And so one morning on my way to work, I just made a quick stop into Bass Pro, and I forgot Lauren was in the car seat. I was in Bass Pro like 20, 30 minutes. And I was like, oh! And I left everything in my basket and I ran outside and she was still asleep and I started the car, drove to work, checked her in, went to work and didn't say a word to anybody (laughs) for like 10 years. (laughs) Trina, you have heard that story before, right? Just, okay, making sure, right? Parents are not trustworthy. Mom and dad, you are not trustworthy. Teachers, are there any teachers in the house this morning? Karen, we all know you're not trustworthy, right? Are teachers trustworthy? How many of you have ever gotten back a grade on a paper and you looked at it like, no, 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 I spelled that word right. I don't know what she was thinking, right? Teachers make mistakes, not fully trust. Coaches, Dane. Dane told me a story earlier this year about a play that they ran this last season that was absolutely illegal. He didn't mean it to come out that way. It was a mistake. They still talk about it in the referee conferences, right, Rory? He became the example, right? Coaches are not trustworthy. Police officers. I don't know if there's any cops in the house. Okay, I'm on thin ice with police officers. Let's not even go there, right? They are human. They make mistakes, don't they? Don't they? How about politicians? We don't even have to talk about that. Not trustworthy. I don't care which side of the aisle they sit on. Not trustworthy. Referees. I don't even want to go there. I played football in middle school and high school. Not trustworthy. We're not trust. People are not trustworthy. Why? Because we're fallen. We're fallible. We're sinners. Every one of us is selfish. Every one of us is self-centered. We say things that make other people think we're not. But we know in the reality of the confines of our little minds and hearts, the world revolves around us, doesn't it? Right? The world revolves around you, doesn't it? Right? We're not trustworthy. None of us is trustworthy. Only one is worthy of our trust. Only one. Only God is perfect. Only God is right all the time, every time. Only God is never, ever, ever wrong. He's the only one that we can fully and truly trust. There's no one better to lead you in your decision making than God, right? Trust in the Lord. Trust in the Lord. Step two, delight. I like that word, delight. That's a cool word, delight. Y'all say delight out loud. No, no, all of you. Delight. See, it's hard not to smile when you say delight, right? Delight in the Lord. Delight means to have great joy or pleasure, to experience great joy or pleasure in somebody's presence in your life, and you being in their company, in their presence. Delight in the Lord. Now, to experience delight, you've got to know somebody pretty well, don't you? 
If you're going to delight in their presence, you've got to at least be in a, a getting to know you on a pretty good level. Like when Trina and I were dating, it was fun to be around her at first. But after a little while, we began to delight in each other's company, right? I hope you have that same story with your spouse or significant other if you're dating, that you are delighting in each other's company. It didn't start out as a delight. It started out as an attraction. It was good. It was cool. But it develops into a delight as that relationship develops. Delighting in the Lord is the second step to good decision-making, to godly decision-making. Delighting in God. To delight in Him, you've got to get to know Him. You've got to spend time with Him. You've got to enjoy being in His presence. What does that look like? What does that mean? Well, if you're going to take pleasure in His presence, you need to be in His presence. Being in His presence can take many forms. You're in His presence right now. You have entered into His presence as you entered into this community of believers, this community of people who is seeking to grow in their relationship with God. So you are in His presence when you are in the church, when you are acting as the church, being the church. You're in His presence. You're also in His presence when you open up the Word of God. When you open up your Bible and you read, you are in His presence. You are learning the eternal truths that are tucked away between these covers. I mean, this is the book of truth. This is a love letter from God. This deals with every aspect of your life. Every situation you will ever encounter is tucked away in here. And everything that God has in store for you is tucked away in here. Spending time in the Word is spending time with God. It's getting to know Him better. It's developing your relationship with Him. And developing that relationship can lead to delight, to taking pleasure in being in His presence. Praying, praying, entering into God's presence through prayer. We have a, a closet in our master bedroom. I go in there and shut the door sometimes, even when nobody's at home. I'll go into the closet. It's inside of our bathroom and then inside of the, It's like tucked away. It's the most isolated place in our house. I'll turn the light off, shut the door, go in there. I'll hit my knees. Sometimes I fall just flat out on my face, and I just pray. I pour out my soul to God. I tell him what's going on in my life, what I'm thinking, how I'm feeling, what my hurts, my insecurities, my fears are. I praise him for who he is. I talk to him about what I desire. I confess my sins. I ask for his forgiveness. I enjoy those conversations. I sometimes just shut up and listen for the still, small voice of God. Prayer, reading your Bible, being in the church, listening to worship music, listening to, to messages, pastor sermons. You know, we're on iTunes. You can download the messages if you want to listen to me again. I'm not sure if anybody really wants to do that. But if you want to do that, that's available. Our website, you can go to our website. You can listen online on our website. There's other great pastors out there. There's some great talk radio stations, Christian stations. Dialing in to those things is a way for you to be with God and to develop your relationship with Him and to begin to have the ability to delight yourself in the Lord, to delight yourself, to take great pleasure, great joy in being with Him. 
as you delight yourself in the Lord, as you grow in your relationship with him, you know what's interesting? You know what will happen? It's that thing that that last song that we sang before the message talked about. God will change you from the inside out. He will align your heart and your mind with his heart and his mind. He will transform the way that you think, the way that you feel emotionally. He will transform you from the inside out. And the transformation is becoming more like him. You will begin to think more like God thinks. And you will emote, you will feel, you'll have emotions more like God's emotions. The things that break God's heart will break your heart. The things that bring him joy and pleasure will bring you joy and pleasure. Your decision-making process will become more refined, more reliable as you think and feel as God thinks and feels. Delight yourself in the Lord. Commit. Ah, commit. This one's where it gets dicey. We live in a culture that doesn't like to commit. Have y'all noticed that? We really, we avoid commitment in our culture. Like, everything is disposable now. Have you noticed that? There's like, we don't buy things for the long haul. Everything costs less, or a lot of things cost less than they did technology especially. Uh, uh, you know, 10, 20 years ago, technology, you know, whoo, expensive. But you held on to it for a long time. Like you bought a computer, and that computer would serve you for five plus years. You buy a computer today, and it is obsolete before you unbox it. They've got four generations newer, faster, better, stronger, rolling off the assembly line, but for the one you bought, got the tape broken on the box, right? I mean, iPhone 6 is coming out this year. I got a 5, and it's two generations old already. They don't even service or sell them anymore. You can't go buy an iPhone. You get a 5S, but you can't even get a 5, right? It's crazy how fast technology changes. Cars, who buys a car anymore? Everybody leases. I mean, I buy them. And I drive them to 200,000 miles and the wheels are falling off, right? But we lease cars. Most of our culture leases a car because they don't want the commitment. They don't want to be married to it. There's even a commercial on TV right now with Richard Rawlings, the guy from um, Gas Monkey Garage in, in Dallas. He's got a TV show. It's a, it's a Dodge program, and I hope I'm not selling Dodge cars right now. But if you buy a brand new 2014 and drive it for a year, then they'll let you trade it in for a 2015, when the 2015 of that model comes out, and your payment stays the same, right? Because Richard ends the commercial saying, you know why I like this deal? Because I'm not married to it. We don't like commitment. We're a non-committing culture. We've got to commit as a part of this process of decision-making, and that commitment is a much deeper, much more meaningful commitment than I think our culture understands commitment to be these days. We've all experienced failed commitment, right? You had a boyfriend or a girlfriend break up with you. And I know this is hard and it hurts, and I'm sorry for those of you who have experienced this, but divorce is real. We've all seen it. We've experienced it, some of us personally, firsthand, some of us through other people. Divorce is real. It's a failed commitment, right? Some of you started college, 
started college. You made a commitment. You were gonna, you were gonna graduate, you were gonna do this. You started, but you hadn't finished yet. We all experience failed commitments. And so committing is hard for us to do. It's really hard. And I think because of those failed commitments, some of us have kind of dumbed down what commitment really means. We say, I commit. But then when the circumstances change, we're like, that was an old commitment. I can get out of that commitment because things are different today. I I, I don't feel it like I felt it. I don't want it like I wanted it. And so the commitment ceases to be a commitment. At that point, it is just an option, right? It's a, it's a, eh, maybe. Here's what Psalm 55, chapter 22 says about commit in terms of this decision-making process. Commit. Think about commit as we read this. Cast your cares on the Lord, and he will sustain you. He will never let the righteous be shaken. Cast your cares on the Lord. Let's talk about what that means for a moment. Casting your cares on the Lord. On the Lord. This is literally an unburdening of yourself. This is an unburdening of yourself, of your mind, of your body, of your spirit. It is letting go of your burdens, those things that weigh you down, that bog you down, those things that feel like an anchor that you're dragging through your life. Most often these things are emotional things. These are mental and emotional scars that we carry with us, maybe from childhood, maybe from your last job, your last relationship, maybe from your current one. These things are heavy. These are the burdens of our past the things that we did, the bad decisions that we made, and the fallout from them. They may be physical. There are people in our church here, there are people in our community that carry a great burden for physical pain or physical ailment. Kathy sits in a wheelchair. We tell people to stand up in church, and she's like, I wish I could. It's a burden most of us don't ever think about, right? There are physical burdens, there are emotional burdens, there are spiritual burdens of the sins that you know you have committed and the ones that you still harbor in your heart. Oh, it's a burden. What does the Bible say to do? Cast your burdens on the Lord. Cast your burdens on the Lord. That is a great image to me, a great description of the kind of commitment that this decision-making process talks about. That is like getting fully naked in front of God, emotionally, physically, spiritually. It's the pouring out of all of your burdens. It's owning up and confessing your sins, your hurts. It's owning up and confessing your doubts and your fears. It's being real with yourself and with God, and it's putting it all out there, and it's giving it to Him, and then stepping away and saying, that's yours. I can't carry that. And we were never meant to carry all of that. We were never made to carry all of that. Jesus, when He was on the cross, and He said, it is finished. He was taking your burden. He carries your burden. You don't have to. 
But most of us walk through this life carrying that burden and it bogs us down and it will certainly mess up your decision-making process. When you're sitting there telling yourself, I'm not good enough, I can't do it, I hurt too much, I'm not physically able, I'm not emotionally able, I'm not equipped. When God is calling you to do something, when he's leading you down a path and you won't go because you're anchored by these burdens, you've got to cast those burdens on God. Give them to him so that you can follow his lead. Check out Proverbs 16.3. Proverbs 16.3 will help us understand why this is so important. Commit to the Lord whatever you do and he will establish your plans. If we will commit to the Lord whatever we do, he will establish our plans. So if we will get real with God and give him our burdens, and if we will give him control, commit to him whatever you do, then he will establish our plans. In other words, he will give us direction for those decisions. He will establish your plans. How many of you have marched off on your own plans only to find out that was not God's plan? Trina and I set out to plant Elevation Church in Castle Rock, Colorado in 2009. Did you notice that we're not in Castle Rock, Colorado when you woke up this morning and there were no mountains in your view and the humidity is hovering around 80% and it's like 90 degrees, right? We talked to Trina's mom in, in uh, uh, Colorado Springs yesterday and it was 44. I said, here we come, but we're here. See, we thought we had a plan. God had to redirect our plan. It took him over a year to get me redirected back into his plan because I wasn't following this decision-making process as closely or as carefully as I should. Commit to the Lord whatever you do, and he will establish your plans. If that in and of itself is not enough, let's circle back to Psalm 37 for a moment. If that's not reason enough to trust and to delight and to commit, circle back to Psalm 37. Verse 3, trust in the Lord and do good, dwell in the land and enjoy what? Safe pasture. Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land, stay in the land that God has given you, stay in the zone that God has given you, and you will enjoy safe pasture. God is watching out for you. The good shepherd is protecting you. When you are trusting in him, he's got your front, back, left, right, top, and bottom. He surrounds you and protects you. Verse 4, take delight in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. Okay, if protection wasn't enough, if God's leadership wasn't enough, then he will give you the desires of your heart? Are you kidding me? When you align your heart with God's by delighting in him, by investing in your relationship with him, when your head and your heart are aligned with God, guess what? He takes delight in giving you the desires of your heart because you desire what he desires. Whew, that'll preach. When you desire what he desires, you no longer worry about asking God for what you want. He's going to give it to you most of the time before you even realize you want it. Verse 5, commit your way to the Lord. Trust in him and he will do this. He will make your righteous reward shine like the dawn. I like righteous rewards. Any of y'all? I don't even know what that means exactly. Like he doesn't define fully what that righteous reward is going to look like. 
I mean, I read that and I get the big picture is he's talking like my eternal righteous reward. And I'm only righteous because I'm with God. I'm a completely unrighteous man, but for the grace of God. The same is true for you. If you are not living under God's grace, you're completely unrighteous, as good a person as you might try to be. If you're living under God's grace, if you have that relationship with him, guess what? You're unrighteous on your own, but because of Christ in you, you have a righteous reward. I believe that reward is both the eternal reward and also rewards of the joys and the blessings of this life as well. Those are the reasons why we must trust, why we must delight, why we must commit in our decision-making. But remember, there is one more step. There's one more piece to this decision-making puzzle. Anybody remember what it is? Be still and wait for the Lord. Verse 7, be still and wait for the Lord. Don't miss this. Don't miss this step. This is how I ended up headed to Castle Rock instead of staying in Flower Mound. This is how we had our house for sale the de- three days after Kenley was born, right? This is how I put my wife through nine months of living hell trying to get us to Colorado when God was not calling us there. I wasn't still. I didn't wait. I assumed that because he said go plant, but he didn't tell me where, that he left it up to me to decide. Thank you for the laughter, those of you who know, right? I did the other three steps right. I didn't wait for the Lord, and I made a wrong decision. And the wrong decision at the right time or the right decision at the wrong time still ends up wrong, doesn't it? Yes. Wait for the Lord. Wait for God to give you the green light to execute the decision that he has put in front of you, that he has led you to. If you will trust and delight and commit, he will lead you to the right decision, but then wait for the go signal. Wait for the green light. And when you get the green light, stop waiting. Get out of paralysis. Get to stepping. Because the Lord will get you moving if you don't move on your own. If you don't believe me, read the book of Acts. He ran the disciples right out of Jerusalem via persecution. I'm not in on persecution if I can avoid it. But wait for the Lord. And then when he says go, go. Be patient and let him lead. But when he leads, follow. Don't wait any longer. As for me in the student ministry, some of you already know the end of the story, but some of you may not. After that conference, I got this decision-making process. Trina and I began to pray together. I still had the Bible where we highlighted and tabbed the page and, and made notes and all of this stuff. And as I prepared for this message, I opened that Bible up and got a lot of joy out of that. But we spent about another 10 days, and the Lord gave me Very clear, and her too. Very clear direction, and the green light to go. I made the transition. I spent almost two years as the uh, 11th and 12th grade pastor at that church. Two of the best ministry years of my life. Two of the most phenomenal years of experiences. Reaching 
those kids, touching the lives of juniors and seniors in high school, leading them to the Lord, helping them learn how to deal with life as followers of Christ before they headed off into college, into academia, where they would encounter all kinds of crazy stuff, all kinds of anti-Christian rhetoric, all kinds of things to challenge and, and try to defeat their faith. Two amazing years. It's where God also eventually called me to plant Elevation Church. He used those two years to prepare me, to carry me further down that path than I could have seen. So my right decision at the right time in that student ministry decision-making process led me here today. God used it to prepare me to pastor and to plant Elevation Church, to be here with you today. Right decisions at the right time. God-led decisions through this God-ordained, somewhat secretive, hidden, tucked away little decision-making process. I pray that what you have heard here today, that you will learn. That you won't have just heard it, but you will learn it. Learning comes when you apply it. Apply this and watch what happens. Apply this and see what God will do as you make your daily decisions and your big, big decisions. Father God, thank you for this decision-making process. Thank you for being a God that we can trust and delight in and commit to and a God who answers our prayers and who has a plan and a purpose for us and who will communicate with us so that when we wait, we can know that you will eventually give us either the green light to go or the stop sign or the diversion to keep us on the right path. Father God, the decisions that every one of us makes each and every day have great impact in our lives. The decision to do this or do that, to talk to this person or not, decisions about what we do with our time, with our money, with our talents, all of these decisions are not just earthly decisions with earthly consequences, but they're spiritual decisions with big spiritual impact as well. So I pray, Father, that everyone in this church this morning will go out of here trusting, delighting, committing, waiting, but certainly, God, also going, going. As we continue to worship you this morning, Father, we're going to bring the tithe into your storehouse. We're going to bring the tithe in, bring the offering in, so that there may be food in your house, so that this church may be the church in this community, that we may execute the vision that you've given us. I pray this morning that those who are visiting with us for the first time, God, that they would have total peace in this moment, that they wouldn't feel pressure to give, God, that they would be comfortable leaving their wallet in their pocket or their purse. Lord, that they can just witness how your church worships you tangibly with the blessings that you have given us, the financial blessings, that we return back to you a portion of that. Lord, let this offering do the work that it's intended to do. Let this church 
be the hands and the feet that do it. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.